Welcome to Masterminds and Maintenance, a podcast for those with new ideas and maintenance. I'm your host, Ryan. I'm the CEO and founder of Upkeep. Each week, I'll be meeting with a guest who's had an idea for how to shake things up in the maintenance and reliability industry. Sometimes the idea failed, sometimes it made their business more successful, and other times their idea revolutionized an entire industry. Today, I'm super excited to have the CEO and founder of People and Processes, Inc. on the show, Jeff Shiver. Jeff has over 25 years of experience working in manufacturing and facilities environments. Within Mars, North America, he worked at four different plant locations, held two different corporate roles. In Colombia, he was a vital team member starting a new pet food facility, initiating a predictive maintenance program and pioneering a plant floor information to the web. Jeff, you started People and Processes in 2006. You've leveraged all of your expertise in mentoring, helping people and organizations, teaching them best practices. Welcome to the show, Jeff. That's quite a bit. (laughs) (laughs) It is, Ryan, and thank you so much, man. I'm just super excited, super excited to share some of my knowledge and experiences with your audience. I'm really looking forward to it. Maybe we could just start off by, you know, sharing a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, actually, you did a great job with, with part of my background, but uh, prior, to Mars, actually did, prior to Mars, I did contract engineering for Procter & Gamble and also for IBM in Manassas, Virginia. And as you mentioned, I spent the bulk of my career inside the Mars world, uh, both on the confectionery, snack foods, and pet care business units. And within that, I think I held almost every position that was possible. It seems like in a manufacturing facility, short of accounting, for example, but uh, many positions. I was controls engineer in Cleveland, Tennessee, Albany, Georgia. I was part of the startup team you mentioned that built the pet care facility in Columbia, South Carolina. In that facility, I was controls technician, a reliability technician, actually started a predictive program. I was an IT. I took uh, and using the database and the CMS information and also the uh, historian, the plant historian, I started taking plant floor information and putting it out on the web, on the intranet, before software even existed to really do it. We were actually coding an actor server pages to give you an idea how long ago that was. You know, it was really cool, you know, doing that kind of stuff. And then I got promoted into a corporate role doing that. They said, on the pet food side, they said, no, 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 we're gonna pull you back onto the snack food side because snack food makes more money and we want to leverage all this technology in our world as part of that. And so that was great as part of that. Production shift manager, continuous improvement manager, and an operations manager. And as in the continuous improvement manager uh, role, you know, that was actually like a maintenance manager. So I had other maintenance managers to report to me, like 100 technicians. So it was a large facility with regard to that. And as you said, we started people in processes in 2006 with other individuals, and now I'm the sole owner of the company. We're a global consulting and, and educational services provider. Um, focus really on providing solutions to do exactly what you're after. How do we educate people and bring them along on their reliability journey and actually help the organizations at the end of the day save jobs? And we never talk about the human cost. We always talk about reliability, but it's really important to talk about the human cost as part of that picture too. So yeah, that's pretty much kind of a good summary. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that sounds like quite the, the experience and quite the breadth of different roles. You really meant it when you said you held pretty much every single role. Um, I want to go back to the very beginning, Jeff. How did you first, first get started in this field? What was your first footsteps into maintenance and reliability? Really, I got started when I was doing the control and engineering role. And within that, I was really working closely with maintenance and 
you know, after building the plant in Columbia, I became the technician and then started a reliability program where we're using all the predictive technologies, vibration, infrared, ultrasound, oil analysis, all those things. And it was really funny because, for example, even like air surveys, compressed air surveys, we go out in the field, take our ultrasound, you know, guns and, and shoot different fittings and things and come back in the maintenance guys and just fuss because we find all these leaks. And they're like, there's no way, Jeff, this stuff is leaking. And absolutely it was leaking, you know, we show them. And they fix it and they've used cheap polyflow fittings and they come back and say, well, it's fixed. And I go shoot it again. No, it's not. You know, you need to change what you're using. And so it was really cool. And then I became involved in, you know, planning and scheduling as part of that role with regard to the corrective actions. You know, after doing shutdown and project planning and the engineering role for many, many years. And as a continuous improvement manager inside Waco, that maintenance manager role we just talked about, I actually led a change from being reactive to proactive. And as part of that, you know, in the first 18 months, we gave back $20 million in capacity to the site. We reduced waste and scrap by $10 million, and we took $2 million off the maintenance budget in just in the first 18 months. So it was huge for the organization. And then I actually got pulled into how do we start leveraging this across the enterprise. And I'll always remember the story, you know, it was kind of cool because what would happen is, is you know, maintenance typically doesn't really have a a seat at the table in many organizations, you know, production drives the show. And as part of that, you know, we would actually have storyboards out in the plant. And so when the VIPs would go tour around the plant, maintenance technicians would be standing there with the storyboards and they talk about the, what great jobs they were doing and all the different technologies they were putting in and, and how they were improving their work practices and driving to improve reliability. And then as part of that, it was really neat because the VPs would wear lab coats, white lab coats in the food, food manufacturing. And the VP of manufacturing would stand behind and I'd stand behind the VPs who were up across, close to the board, the storyboard, and he'd pull out his pocket, you know, and he'd point to it and say, Jeff, put more money in, put more money in, you know. <laughs> but that's exactly what we're doing. It's where we're saving the business a ton of money. And it's all these things that we don't talk about, the downtime and, and we really, you know, are, are indirect costs, really, you know, from a maintenance perspective. So, you know, when we look at that and then continuing on with some of that background with regard to how I got involved with it, 10 years ago, I even got really deep into the reliability center maintenance aspects. And I became one of 75 practitioners around the world certified to teach RCM2 and RCM3 now. Um, you know, so when we talk about certifications as well, CMRP, Asset Reliability Practitioner, CAT1, CAT2, CAT3, CRL, Certified Professional Maintenance Manager through AFE, Machinery Lubrication Technician 1, you know, so lots of different certifications, but I only leverage the certifications to, to help the clients understand, okay, this is why it's so important that you think about all these things and things that we've talked about, you know, before we even started, you know, how do we take and develop people to be able to fulfill the roles and meet the objectives and drive the business forward. That's really the key, you know, at the end of the day. And as we talked about too, before we started in this past October, I actually finished a three-year term as the member services director for the Society of Maintenance Reliability Professionals. And that's why we didn't catch up at the uh, conference in, in October because I was so busy doing all that great stuff. What's one surprising, unsuspecting thing that you absolutely love most about the, the industry that you've learned over time? <laughs> the people. It is all about the people. 
you know, it really is. And, you know, I, we probably don't have time to get into all of that here, but man, it, it, it's the people are the most important things. And, and we always kind of give lip service to that. You see companies give lip service to that, but that is the reality piece. You know, yeah. we've got to have their buy-in to be successful. Uh, you know, it's just so important that we do, that we understand the needs of the people and help them understand, you know, as part of that, what's in it for them, you know, and be able to answer that question when we talk about trying to transition from what they've been doing for the last 20 years to, to a better place. Awesome. You know, I, I think I kind of know the answer to this next question now, Jeff, uh, but I'm going to ask it anyways. You started a company called People in Process. Where did that name come from? <laughs> uh, you know, it's a great name and it really fits, you know, because we just talked a lot about the people, but, you know, a lot of failure, if we even look at failure, for example, and we talk about reliability centered maintenance, 40% of the failures, you know, if we look at that, you know, 70% of the failures are self-induced and 40% of that's just human error is part of it. So, you know, if we can't get the people side right, then we're in trouble. We're never going to be successful. And then, you know, if you're going to try to change the organization, you've got to get people to buy in. So people is, is clearly one of the things. And with regard to the process aspects, one of the plant managers I worked with in Waco, Texas, um, his name was Ken Hampton. And he always talked to me, he basically, I worked with him in different plants across the Mars organization. And he always talked to me about ways of working. Jeff, it's about the ways of working. It's about the processes. And you know, I learned a long time ago too in Six Sigma that every product is a result of the process. And in many organizations I go to, what I see is they don't have the processes. They clearly haven't defined the processes and they haven't audited the processes to understand you know, where they need to improve or why people are deviating. You know, we talk about deviation of processes too. Generally what happens is people are just trying to get the job done. And you know, Deming said himself that you know, oftentimes it's the processes that management puts in place that impede the work from doing the right work. You know, so how do we make sure we're doing the right work in the right ways? We have to audit that to find out. But that's where the name really came from. You know, it just became the obvious choice. <laughs> I love it. Well, well, Jeff, today I really wanted to chat about the people behind maintenance and planning and scheduling, since I know that this is a topic that you've covered quite a bit, both in your, your writing and also within the company. So I guess the first question I've got for you, you know, where have you found the best maintenance planners and schedulers that are effective? Where did they come from? What skills did they hold? I think we were just talking about, about this right before we started recording was 37% of people that apply for these jobs don't actually have the skills and aptitude. Where do you find, uh, where do you find the ones that are? Yeah, the reality for planning and scheduling is one of the more detailed roles that we have in the organization. So, you know, on the surface, obviously, we want computer skills, you know, is a huge piece for us because we're working with tools like upkeep, you know, we've got to get the CMMS and we've got to make it work. But in addition to that, you know, they need to be motivated, self-driven, because a lot of times they're actually working in a solo fashion. You know, and they have to go out to the job site by themselves and a planner should spend a third of the day in the field. And so they go out and they actually look at the jobs and they plan for those. So they need to, you know, be able to go out and be driven to do that. And they have to be people friendly. We've talked a lot about people already, but there has to be a collaborative approach. You know, how do you actually get and, and help people buy into what you're trying to do? And so we make a mistake because we think that the planner is supposed to give the, the technician a fully detailed job plan. The reality is, is we want the planner to give them a head start. You know, and then we can improve that over time with feedback. 
you know, and, and build that into the job plans. So it's really important. But what I'll say is, is you know, here's the really the, the piece that we often miss, and I see so many organizations don't do in the right way. We don't pull craft skills in. You really, if you're going to plan for the work, you really need craft skills for the work you're going to plan for. And I see organizations take people in, and we get into great discussions all the time. And I teach planning and scheduling classes, like for the University of Tennessee, RMIC. And as part of that, you know, you have people in the roles, and they'll be like, well, you know, Jeff, I don't, I didn't, don't have craft skills. And I'm like, okay, but the learning curve is much longer for you because of that. You know, it's not that it can't be accomplished, it can, but the reality is, is the learning curve is, is much steeper and you have to overcome that. Some people can really come up the curve quickly, but others can't. And it also hurts you with credibility with the technicians. And I'll add this too. What we see is as many times companies will actually go and they'll try to promote from within. They'll try to take technicians and make them planners but HR gets involved and when they do the job posting, what happens is maybe it's a salary position and they want to pay like 70 grand a year or some number, you know, and as part of that, but the technician looks at it and says, well, you know, I make with the overtime, I'm making a hundred thousand dollars a year now. And so if I take this job, it's going to directly impact my pocketbook, you know, my wallet. So I'm not going to do that unless for some reason they want to get off, to, off of midnight shift and go to day shift or something like that. But that's part of the issue is why we don't get good skilled people in those roles is simply because we, we don't look at what they earn, you know. And oftentimes they'll take, when the, when the, you take a planner position, it becomes a salary position over an hourly position. You know, and if you really want to mess with the planners, I'll share something I've seen in the past that happened at a chemical plant. They got a new technical director and he said, okay, let's shake things up. And I'm like, excuse me? And he says, yeah. He says, what we're going to do is we're going to have the maintenance of the mechanical planners plan for the electricians. And we're going to have the, electrician, the electrical planner plan for the mechanics. And I'm like, nah. And then if you really want to get somebody emotional and start playing with their pay, and that's what he did. He took them from hourly to salary. And then that wasn't working. So then the salary with, with uh, you know, with overtime. And I'm like, still, you know, I mean, by then he had disenfranchised pretty much every planner they had as part of that, you know, and it's just like, those are things you don't want to do as part of it. So it's a craft and we need to treat it like a craft. And it's also planning and scheduling as part of that. So in the perfect world, Jeff, you had two different people. One that had the craft skills. Maybe this is a former, you know, or maybe it is, it's an existing technician that you could either promote into a planning scheduling role, or it's a, it's a very organized uh, project manager person which one would you which one would you think would be best suited for this role? Do you have Just a taking that, I would go for the craft skills. I would always go for the craft skills, you know, because again, it, it's not that the other person can't be successful because they can. But if you think about what we're trying to accomplish, what we're trying to accomplish with planning is we're trying to determine what materials are necessary, how long is it going to take, what are the specific tasks. And I'll talk about it a little bit later, probably as part of the conversation, but what happens too is the planner really has a res responsibility to try to drive defect elimination. It's not just about giving, you know, the head start for the technicians, but it's also about how do they eliminate some of the defects. So understanding the specifications necessary, what torque, what gaps, what fits, what clearances, those kind of things, you know, what kind of belt tension do we need? And as part of it, you know, what kind of materials do I need to order? And it's better if they've done the job in the past because that really sets them up for success as opposed to, you know, if you take somebody who 
doesn't have that background and what they're doing is they're, they're coming in and they're taking um, you know some work order and then they're having to go to the technician or the supervisors to find out what materials they need and everything else it just slows down the whole process you know and so and if you think about it you know ultimately we want to be 90 percent planned 10 percent reactive that's the goal you know so how do we farm more and more work into the planning realm and push that through i was just talking just this last week with an organization, a municipal water treatment organization. And as part of that, they talked about, so well, you know, our planners, all they have time to do is get materials, but that doesn't help us, you know, with regard to that. So it's really important that we, we focus on the craft skills and understand it because again, how do we give them a head start? Because what we're trying to do is drive the craft efficiencies, basically in addition, you know, from well, typical efficiency somewhere in the 25 to 35%, I've seen as low as a measured 12%. But the target is 55 to 65% from a wrench time perspective. But bigger than that is the defect elimination piece, those specifications and things. It's not about planning and scheduling more work. It's about eliminating ultimately the need to plan and schedule all of that work. Yeah, absolutely. So taking that step back is so important. Understanding why do we even have this role? It's not just to plan and schedule. Again, to your point, it's about defect elimination. It's about moving from being more proactive than we are reactive. Yeah. Um, which is a good segue into this next question. You know, I read your article on LinkedIn titled, you know, RCM3 planning and scheduling the rubber meets the road. And I read a specific note in that article that you mentioned only about 10% of planners are utilized effectively. So now that we've got this, you know, this technician with the craft skills that wants to move into this planner scheduler role, how do you train this person to be part of the 10%, to be part of the folks that are being utilized effectively? Well, it's a combination. Actually, training actually does a small portion of that, believe it or not. And what happens is, is you can send the planner, and I see this in, in classes that I teach all the time. What happens is they'll send the planner, for example, to planning the scheduling class. They'll take a three-day course on it, and then they go back into the organization, and they're like, you know, I can't plan a schedule because you got me doing everything else. You know, you got me doing the fire extinguisher checks, and I'm managing the, the contractors, and I'm doing all this stuff. You know, and that's actually what we talk about. The planner focus should be next week and beyond, not this week. And the supervisor really has responsibility for this week. And when you pull the planners into this week, you ruin that. You know, they can't focus on the future. And, you know, so it's, and, and as I sit through some of those planning classes and some of those planners tell me, so Jeff, I just wish everybody else was here to get the same message because, you know, they expect me to come back and to change the organization. I'm, I'm just one person and I'm an hourly technician level, basically, or slightly, and I can't do that. Well, first I would say, number one, you can, because change can start with one and every journey starts with a single step. But as part of that, you know, I understand, you know, in the bigger picture, they, they struggle with that. But if the production, if the production people don't give access to the equipment, then you can put all the schedules together that you want and it won't matter, you know. And if the maintenance technicians don't believe in what you're doing, then what they do is they, or the supervisors more importantly, they just chunk your plan and your scheduling things in the trash can as they walk out the door from the scheduling meeting. And believe it or not, I've actually seen that happen. You know, so the challenge with this is, you know, how do you educate the organization? And I'm really encouraged when we're able to go on site 
And we actually do planning and scheduling education within the site itself, and they can get more than just the planners there. They get the supervisors, they get the production supervisors, you know, the maintenance manager, and all of them get the same message. And that's really key. But then as part of that too, the other piece behind that is, you know, how do you leverage coaching and auditing the processes and making sure that the planner is doing what you expect or you're not impeding the planner? And we'll talk about it, you know, as well later probably, but an assessment. You know, how do you actually know where you're at today, you know, compared to the best practices from a planning and scheduling standpoint and putting together a plan of action to fix that stuff. Do you think planning and scheduling should be broken out into two different roles? Oh, that's a great question. And as part of that, you know, it, there's, it depends, okay? And within, when I was the continuous improvement manager, we did that. I used the scheduler role as a developmental role for a planner position. And we had basically four planners and one scheduler. Mm-hmm. And that scheduler interfaced with production to say, hey, when is it we want to do the work? You know, but the planners actually worked on when the work orders came in, you know, how do we actually determine what we need to do and what's the right way to plan the job, get the materials, all those kind of things, you know, and the hour estimates and that stuff. But, you know, truthfully, in many cases, it's better if you have the planner and the scheduler role combined because the person who planned it knows what's required. And so it's helpful when they go to do the scheduling piece and work with the, with the uh, other stakeholders and the scheduling meeting in other places, you know, to how do we make sure we're doing it in the right way. And we, and we often talk about it, you know, Ryan, in terms of planning and scheduling, but it's really planning, then scheduling, and it's part of that coordination. And we, list, we, we miss the coordination aspects, which is another key piece. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I always find that that's an interesting question. And what I often hear is, you're right, it depends. It depends on the size of your organization. It depends on your resources. It depends on, you know, what is the problem that you're trying to solve today? And what is the biggest problem that you're trying to solve? Jeff, I, I, you know, I guess tackling on to this next piece, which actually uh, builds on the previous one, uh, you know, how do you, how do you interview, how do you test maintenance planners effectiveness um what do you look for and how do you make sure that you're continuously improving on your own skills as a maintenance planner and scheduler well you know when we talk about actually interviewing i'll share an experience i had you know with uh it was actually an aluminum smelting plant and what they did is they took in um basically created uh, extrusions, if you will, for, for bottles, for aluminum bottles and aluminum cans and those kind of things. And as part of that, it was really funny because one of the individuals that was applying for a planner position asked me to sit in on the interview and I had to do it by a telephone call, by a conference call. And so I was sitting there and I was asking all the right questions and he was given all the right answers. You know, and I was like, wow, you know. But the problem was, is I was expecting them to also be doing the testing is part of that. So it's a combination of understanding, you know, the people who are doing the interviewing need to understand what the best practices are. You know, they need to understand how they put barriers in place of planners. And, but then they also need to put in some practical application test as part of the interview process. You know, how do we actually understand what the capabilities were? Because this individual is a perfect case. He went, he gave me all the right answers. And, you know, again, I was assuming that they were actually doing the physical testing part, if you will. And so I came in about a month later as part of a coaching visit for the site. And when I was there, I went over to him and I said, okay, show me your schedules. 
And he said, well, I've been struggling with him, you know, and stuff like this, learning the software. And it's a month later, you know, and I'm like, okay. You know, and I said, well, show me a plan that you put together, a job plan. And he said, well, I don't have any because I've been working on the schedule stuff and things like that. And I kept digging deeper and come to find out he knew the lingo, but he had never actually planned formally to a job plan. You know, and I said, okay, well, now you're in position. We got to figure out how to fix this. So let's roll up our sleeves. And so we rolled up our sleeves and we went out in the plant and I showed him how to put together job plans. You know, and I came back and said, okay, you know how to, you talked about all this stuff, but you've never done it. Now you get, can go do it because you've actually seen it. And that was huge, you know, for, for him. And so that's part of the challenge too, is, is how do we, how do we make sure you're doing that? And then bundling that piece in as well, you know, how do we continue to invest well, I was at a cereal plant and they had 12 planners. They've been in the role seven years. They had never had any formal planning and scheduling training. Mm -hmm. So they fell into the, temp, the, the 90% of that, you know, they're doing everything but planning and scheduling. They were really reactive. They lived for it. And the challenge gets to be, you know, I actually spent time with them and said, okay, this is how you plan and schedule work. We spent three days and even I would come in in the afternoons after that and sit with the shift managers. And it was always great because we never talk about, we talk about planning and scheduling, but we always talk about priority as part of that, you know, criticality priority. And it was great because I asked the, the shift supervisors, I said, okay, you know, you all have different lines. There was about six different lines represented. And I said, tell me, uh, which line is most important? And how many hands do you think I got? I got six from all different, from all the shift supervisors. My line is most important. And I'm like, but you have to realize we only have a small pool of resources, you know, here at the site from a maintenance standpoint, how do we disperse those out to be able to do that? Because we can't respond to all six lines at one time. We only have three people here on the shift, you know? So it comes back into that education. So how do we continuously invest? First is, you know, we have to go back and re-educate in some cases because planners will go to class, People, they'll go back to the site, they'll try to plan the schedule, the organization will put the barriers up, prevent them from planning and scheduling. Then over time, management changes and they'll drift off, the, you know, the expectations will drift. And so we have to go back and educate people and say, okay, this is what's important. Then that coaching and mentoring piece we've talked about is, you know, where are you at? And to really understand that reinvestment, assess. Do an assessment, you know. We, we come in on the assessment piece, we look at it and say, where are you at? And then based on that, you know, we put together a plan with them and give them a report and say, hey, you know, this is what we saw. Now, how are we going to fix it? You know, and that may be something besides addressing the planners and schedules. Planners and schedules might be fantastic. They're just not being allowed to physically do the work. And that's a key piece. So I'm curious, like going back to this, how do you interview and find the right maintenance planner and scheduler? Like, it sounds like you really look for that hands-on practical knowledge. What does your typical interview look like to suss out these practical skills? And how realistic is it for someone to be able to come into a new facility and give their own assessment and really know the ins and outs of, of uh, your facility, your business, given you know, so many different nuances? Yeah, but you know, when you talk about that, Ryan, it's almost like putting together a CMMS. You know, you have certain processes, you know, you're going to have the as is and the to be, you know, you're going to do the, the and it's just like in business, you know, we all say that we're different and, and I always get tickled because in organizations they say, oh yeah, Jeff, you just don't understand, we're different, you know, but the reality is, is yeah, maybe 10% of you are different, 
you know, but that, that there's just nuances about you. But those business processes carry on from one organization to the next. And planning and scheduling, while you may use, you know, upkeep or you may use some other software package, you know, the process of planning and scheduling is still the same, you know. And so it's how do you actually take and say, first off, you know, a question might be a great question is, hey, show me your process. Mm. Most of the time there's silence. There are no processes, you know, and it's by the seat of my pants kind of thing. And you okay, well, you know, in that case, from an assessment standpoint, you don't really have them, you know, and if I go to somebody else and I say, hey, how does this work? You know, they, they can't tell you, you know, so, and you say, well, we'll just do it this way. And I say, and, and I had this conversation the other day as well with that same municipal water treatment facility. They said, you know, what happens if we, uh, if somebody wins the lottery and you disappear out of that job, you know, how do we transition that, you know? And the reality is, is there are no processes to transition. And so to your point, somebody new comes in and now they've got to just adapt, you know, and figure out through tribal knowledge, this is the way it's supposed to work. And, you know, I always like to ask this question, you know, and this question is, do you find experience to be um, value added? Is it a good teacher? And the reality is, is, you know, when we look at it in many terms, in many ways, experience is a horrible teacher. You know, and I, and I saw one quote one day, and it says, it teaches you when to cringe. The lessons of experience teach you when to cringe. And so, it's, you know, and, and lessons, the right lessons in short supply. You know, and, and I always look at this, and I give this example, say, well, you know, if I'm the old person and you're the new person and you come in and they put you with me and I hammer on a bearing with a brass punch, how do you think you're going to do it? You're going to hammer on a brass punch and we're going to kill the bearing or we're going to heat it with a torch, you know, or we're going to warp the races, whatever the case may be. And the same thing happens with planning and scheduling because we, you know, people say, well, let's shadow the technicians, let's hire somebody and let them shadow the technicians for two years, this particular technician. The reality is it took the technician 20 years. So there's no way they're going to transfer that knowledge in two, you know, just not going to happen. So that's really part of the problem is, is how do we actually document the processes, build the roles and responsibilities, audit against those. And when we do the interview process that you asked about, you know, how do we build those kind of things into interview? You know, even though you're coming in, you may not necessarily know that particular variant of software. You may not necessarily know that process but you have mechanical skills or you have electrical skills or whatever the case. And so how can you test for some of those? How can you test for the planning processes? You know, you could take some simple examples of, uh, you know, case studies, if you would, and you can actually build out, uh, you know, you know, hands-on examples of how you might develop a job plan for something, you know, relatively simple at the end of the day. You know, it doesn't have to be equipment specific for that particular manufacturer. Yeah. You know, it's how do you do this basic job of planning and scheduling? What does that job plan look like? You know, does it have safety criteria? Does it have, uh, you know, tasks? Does it have materials? Do we have consumables identified? You know, so it all varies. Absolutely. Well, it sounds like you, you've got that interview process nailed down to a T, and I, I definitely don't think I would pass if, uh, if I were being interviewed by you, Jeff. <laughs> No, I think you'd be, I think you'd do quite well, actually. So I have every confidence you would do really well. I appreciate that, Jeff. Um, I'm curious, you know, what are measures of success for maintenance planners, schedulers? Well, you know, we talked about this, Ryan, with earlier with regard to wrench time. 
And, you know, so we're looking for, for you know, we're not trying to actually create, we're a creating an environment where the technicians are working harder. We're just trying to enable the technicians. And as part of that, you know, technicians really get upset with, for example, like with wrench time studies, they think, oh, they're watching me or doing something. It's not about you. It's not about the technician. It's about the groups of technicians. You know, what are the barriers that are keeping you from doing effective work? Are you not done? Do you not have access to the equipment? Do you not have, um, uh, you know, the right materials? Do you not have, you know, the right tools? Do you not have specifications where you can do it the right way the first time is part of it. You know, those are kind of things we're trying to find out with wrench time studies. So you see improved wrench time as one example, but you also see, you know, things like MTBF are improving, mean time between failures. You know, you're getting much more work done. You're putting together a schedule, which by the way, the schedule sets an expectation. That's what we're after at the end of the day, is we need an expectation. And I was reading an article on LinkedIn just the other day and says, you know, why do, why do managers want to see schedules? Well, because it sets an expectation, you know, and it's really important to have that. You know, so, so I look for those, I look for things like uh, planner accuracy, how accurate are the job plans? And that's on average. We realize today, you know, with regard, you may do a job and it takes two hours. You may come back six months and the bolts are rusted and it takes more time because you have to cut them off. And so it takes you three hours or it takes you four hours. But those are the exceptions, you know. And again, how do you fix those things long term so you don't continuously have those problems? Yeah. You know, so those are some of the metrics. And, you know, cost is another one. But when we think about it, you know, how's the planner setting us up for success? You know, what are we doing? What's the level of detail on the job plans? What's, uh, how well is the feedback loop working? You know, what kind of, uh, how long is it taking in the planning process? You know, a target from the time it goes into the planning process until the job is actually planned is five days or less. You know, so those are the kind of things we look for from a metric standpoint. What I hear you saying is the, the role of success is all about predictability, more so than like, you know, hey, we want to reduce downtime. We want to reduce, you know, it, it, to me, it sounds like you're focused on just having predictability and knowing. Does that sound about yeah, right? It is, and I would say predictability and repeatability, you know, because we're working the process. And as part of it, you know, the planner can't know everything. They, they don't know, they haven't worked every job. But, you know, what's your process? For example, you know, you may have 30 jobs to plan, but if you can just plan the, the 30 of them to start with, with crafts, hours, and materials, that's a head start. And then you may plan two or three. We actually take, we, we have a feedback form that we have and we actually put it out on LinkedIn. And as part of it too, we put out the question, said, how many job plans can you, can a planner do in detail? And we knew from our own experience, it was around two or three. And we went put out to the LinkedIn groups. That's what we found. And it went all over the world. And we built that feedback into the feedback form as well when we shared that. And so it was really key, you know, do the 30 jobs you have to do with the minimum level of detail but plan two or three more detailed jobs with that level of detail, the specifications, you know, other things to make it, you know, a precision maintenance type environment or execution, but then rely on the feedback form to build the next, the those job plans. And every time you send out a job plan, it's an opportunity to improve it and make it better. There's no such thing as a perfect job plan, you know? So those are some of the keys, but you know, like Eric said on one of your, uh, on the podcast you did not too long ago, you know, he says, sometimes we try to make planning and scheduling too hard. And that's true. We do. 
you know, in many cases. And it's how do we make it simple, but it's repetitive. And, and to your point, it's predictable. We, we know we're going to get the same results. It's going to push through. And, and, you know, we might not get it right the first time, but maintenance work is repetitive. Today we work on it. A year from now, we're working on it again. So how do we capture that knowledge? You know, and I share with you too, I was at a chemical plant in a pump shop and all the old people had retired out except for one. And they were bringing in these new young people, you know, just like we're talking about here. How do you bring these people up and, and, and from, you know, technician level or whatever the case, or get them to that level. And they were putting, rebuilding these pumps and these pumps were going out and, you know, they would test them and not very well, obviously, and they would put them into the stock room and two months later or something, they might replace them and they'd only run for like a month or two and then they would fail. And they had to go back and rework, you know, and develop precision procedures necessary, you know, within that shop. And so, it's, again, that's part of the role of that planner is how do we, you know, develop those precision procedures so that we can eliminate some of those defects that we actually introduce. You know, we talk about reliability, the ability to, uh, that the asset will perform its intended function for a stated period of time under stated conditions. And inherent reliability is what you get from the design of that. But the operational reliability is where we install it, we maintain it, we operate it. You know, and that's where the planner plays a big role is how do we not introduce new defects into the reliability issues that we already have in the, within that asset. Well, Jeff, I, I learned so incredibly much through this brief conversation with you. I, I guess last question to wrap things up, you know, what's something you wish more people knew about this industry? <laughs> oh, man, I have a laundry list with regard to that. But, you know, I, I tell you, the, uh, the first one is really how equipment fails and how to develop a legally defensible strategy, reliability strategy for your assets. And that really goes back to RCM, reliability center maintenance. And with regard to that, people think, you know, they struggle with that. They call it a resource consuming monster. And <laughs> the reality is it's not, you know, if you're properly trained and you understand how to execute, it's a fantastic tool to help you develop strategies. And I go in and, and I sit down with organizations, do conference presentations, do all these things, educate executives, the whole nine yards. And the one of the first questions I talk about, even in planning the scheduling class, is how does equipment fail? And you can put up the bathtub curve, you know, kind of like this, and they say, oh, yeah, that's how it fails. Well, no, you know, only a small percentage of equipment fails that way, you know. And the biggest, you know, it just breaks if the failure is random. But Mowbray came out with this in 1984. But RCM2, you know, Nolan Heath in 78. So it's not new stuff, you know. But yet we don't have the basics down. And I should call it forward to the basics. So RCM is one piece, you know. Then we have... Uh, <clears throat> Proper lubrication practices is part of that as well. You know, I was actually at another site and they were working on jockey pumps. And I happened to come by, you know, come by the lubricators, he's lubricating those and he's new in the role. And I noticed he didn't pull the purge plug on the motors. And I'm like, you know, how frequently do you lubricate these? He says, well, every time I come by about once every two or three months, I hit it with a couple of shots. And I said, well, do you pull the purge plugs? And he said, what purge plugs? And I showed him, you know, and he's like, wow. And then while we're having this conversation, one of the electricians comes by and he says, you know, Jeff, uh, what do you mean he lubricates those motors? And I said, well, there's a lubricator. You know, he said, we lubricate these motors. We're the electrical guys. We, we lubricate electric motors. And like you guys, you know, you just fill in the wires with grease. So lubrication is a big piece. And then storerooms, work execution, all the things related to planning and scheduling. 
you know, I've been in the storerooms where they had probably a million dollars worth of inventory and nothing was labeled on the shelf. And I asked the question, I said, you guys have got this in the CMMS, right? And they said, no, we don't have it in the CMMS. We got it on the spreadsheet, right? And they said, no, we don't have it in the spreadsheet. And I said, really? And I said, what's your inventory value? We have no clue. And I said, well, how do you know when you need to order more? And they said, well, what we do is we just have the technician tell the admin person and she just orders more. And I'm like, really? A million dollars worth of, worth of value, you know? And I'm like, this is crazy. So, you know, those are some basic things. And, and the CMMS, you know, we implement a lot of CMMSs. Actually, I should say we re-implement a lot of computerized maintenance management systems when they haven't been done right. And as part of that, you know, you'll find that there's no, no methodology to implement it in the right way. You know, they haven't set up the equipment hierarchy. In one organization, which was a subway system, you know, a huge organization. And another one I was in just the other day, their equipment hierarchy was flat, just absolutely flat. And I'm like, wow, you know, uh, so that's not what we're after at the end of the day. So, you know, again, forward to the basics with regard to that, you know, defect elimination concepts. <laughs> well, Jeff, it sounds like you've just got a wealth of wealth of knowledge. Um, can you share with our, all of our listeners all the ways that they can connect with you, continue learning from, from people in process and all the things that you've done for the industry? Sure. And number one, I want to thank you, Ryan, as well, for having the opportunity just to share some of this knowledge. You know, it, it's a great thing. And it's, it, how do we leverage it and encourage other people? And then this podcast is a fantastic tool to do that. Um, that said, you know, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can obviously find me at Jay Shiver at peopleandprocesses.com. I'll share with you from a resource standpoint. I have about 60 videos on YouTube at the People and Processes channel plus my own channel. And then um, I also have a blog. Unfortunately, I haven't updated it in quite some time, been quite busy, but a blog at plantservices.com. And people would actually ask questions. And it was called Ask Jeff. And the people would ask questions, and I respond to that uh, as part of it. So there's just a few of the resources. But if you do a search on Jeff Shiver, uh, uh, Jeff Shiver, CMRP, or whatever, you'll find just tons and tons of references on Google. So it's not hard to find me or, or some of the resources that we have available to you at all. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you for everything that you do for the industry. And thanks for joining us on this podcast. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in to today's Masterminds and Maintenance. My name is Ryan. I'm the CEO and founder of Upkeep. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn or email me directly at ryan at onupkeep.com. Until next time. Thanks so much.